thank you, um, <clears throat> our worship team, Jacob, for leading all that. And there are so many people that require us to make it work and function, and not just what you see up on stage, but so many of you that volunteer, not just there, but in a variety of places. It is a blessing to be a part of a body that sees to serve and desires to serve. Mark chapter 6 is where we're going to be still, 7 through 13. Um, Here's a claim that I believe, a belief of mine. Um, I believe that we are, as a culture, um, probably pretty close to what Paul had to address the Corinthian church in the first century as far as attitudes, religion, all those things that we are closer to that than we have ever in our history as a culture here in this America that we know and where we are moving to and the direction things are headed and all those things. Um, And so the encouragement through this, I hope today, is that like we just sang, there's no reason to fear God is still on his throne. He's in a good mood because you belong to him. (laughs) And it's okay, regardless of what we have to endure and all the angst that I hear and listen in conversations with many of you. He hasn't gone anywhere. He's not going anywhere. And even though I don't understand all the ins and outs of what's happening, I have the privilege of understanding who he is that he's in control of it all, and you and I will do our part in this moment in time in history where we live, work, and play in our own lives, our families, this community, and as it goes out from there. And that's what Jesus, I believe, is getting at in this idea of where we are in his kingdom strategy. It didn't change for us. It's it's the same principles that he began so long ago in his day, different culture, different sets of stuff, but the stuff is always going to change. The next generation, 40 years from now, is going to be dealing with other things, should the Lord tarry. But the principles here don't just disappear. They are for you and for me. So go to Mark chapter 6, 7 through 13, and he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two. He gave them authority over unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. If any place will not receive you, then they will not listen to you, then you leave." Shake the dust off your feet that is on, or shake the dust uh, that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out, proclaimed that the people should repent, that they cast out demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Father, again, thank you for this opportunity to worship, to share, to hear you, to hear you speak to us in our day. These very same things you challenged the disciples and the early church with. Father, I pray and just continue to ask for discernment and understanding and courage uh, to live faithfully before you, before one another, uh, to not live in fear. But as you said so long ago to Joshua, to be strong and courageous. So to that end, give us what we need. Fill us with your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been talking about principles. Um, If you remember, here's the first couple. Um, 
if you remember. The first one was, you have a calling. If you're in Christ, God is using you to multiply the kingdom. And that you have a calling on your life. That was the first one. The second one, that calling provides you to proclaim something. And we spent last week on the gospel. That's what you're proclaiming. It's not for the minister to do all of it. It's not for the rest of the staff to do all of it. Each one of you has a part in this to play as a church, to do it well, to sacrifice for it, to find your gift and ability in it, and to live in that sweet spot that you enjoy serving, (laughs) that you just like doing, to bring the gospel to bear to a culture. So everybody has a calling on your life when you are in Christ, when you receive the gospel, you have this calling. And one of those is, the very basic is for the gospel to be lived out in your life. To, to know that you've been forgiven and to reflect that. To go from what you used to be and what I used to be without Christ and all my sin and my selfish desires, my self-sovereignty, to, to do what I'm going to do because I'm going to do it. Everything our culture is saying today, that goes right out the window. You are now a new creation in Christ. Everything else is gone. I know sometimes it don't feel like it, does it? <laughs> Paul addresses that in Romans quite, quite at a length. Maybe we'll get there someday. <laughs> It'll take us a while. But we know at least this much so far. If we're going to multiply, if you want to see this body grow, it is all about the gospel. It is always about discipleship and who you are partnering with and proclaiming where you live, work, and play. So here's, I think, six or seven more, and I will do my best to get through them today. Here's the next one. Verse 7. He sends them out two by two. The principle is here, don't go by yourself. Don't do this on your own. Bring someone with you. Who are you bringing with you? If you have kids at home, that's a good place to start. That's your primary ministry, if you will, especially if they're still at home. You don't need to go off to another foreign mission or something else and leave the family necessarily unless God is calling you to do that specifically. Rarely does it happen. But at the very least, you are obliged not to do it alone. Maybe your spouse, you can minister together in some fashion. Maybe you should. But the whole point is, you don't do this alone. There is no lone rangers. There's just no, there's no me and Jesus and we're good and, and I'll just do my thing. There's, there's none of that. There'll be moments for that, but that's not the norm. You don't do this alone. There's a reason for that. This goes all the way back to what Jesus is telling them to do, if you remember. He is bringing judgment to the house of Israel. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the old law, the Old Testament, all of that. He is now doing away with something that is so traditioned and all these good things that the Jewish culture had. He is the fulfillment of all of that. And they rejected him. And so he's picking 12. We talked about all that a week or so ago. And this becomes judgment to a nation. So he sends them out two by two. And this goes back all the way if you're taking notes, which, by the way, there's a theme. That you take two witnesses. You establish anything with two or three witnesses. If you consider our culture and our nation, why you have to have witnesses in a court of law, it's not because you know, our founders say, hey, this is really a good idea. We should at least have two, maybe three, or more. It comes from this. It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 19. It comes from Numbers chapter 35. That's where they got it. You don't do it alone. It is a testimony you establish by two or three witnesses something of truth. And that's what they're doing. Jesus has empowered them. He's giving them this opportunity, this pilot program, if you will, to go test themselves 
to go out and come back really quick on the short-term mission trip. Because Jesus, remember, he's the only one that's been doing this so far, and he's releasing everybody. He is now releasing you, this church, to do the very same thing. And it's a testimony. It's established by two or three witnesses. And it all goes back to that. Not to mention is uh, Ecclesiastes, I think, chapter 4. A strand of two or three is not easily broken. It's hard when you're by yourself, isn't it? When you have to go through something hard with no support. Maybe your family's not here. Maybe you've moved jobs, placement, whatever, and you feel alone. That is, isolation is one of the worst places you can go. It is hard hauling to do this alone. And so Jesus says, you go two by two. So that's first principle, really the third principle. Here's the next one. Compassionate gifting, verse 7 again. How do you know who's from God? How are people going to know? Well, in this case, whoever can actually heal the sick, and not just over a period, but instantly. Whoever can cast out demons, whoever can do these things just like Jesus did, that's this demonstration that they are from God. All that gifting you see in Corinthians, and when Paul says all these gifts, the apostles' gifts specifically, it is validation of the message. It is validation of their ministry that they can do those things. What they spoke, the signs they were given. They were given the sermons Jesus had taught them and worked with them for these 18 months. They were able to do the same signs that Jesus had and was doing. In fact, they could heal. The Luke 9 is the, competitor, the comparison where they were healing the sick. They cast out demons. In verse 12 and 13 um, of Matthew chapter 10, the other corresponding of the Gospels of this story says the same. They were able to raise the dead. That'll get someone's attention, won't it? <laughs> I don't know too many of you that can do that. I know I can't because I'm not an apostle. What were the gifts for? The gifts were gifted to prove that Jesus or that the apostles that these 12 men were of God. They came from him. The Pharisees, if you remember there, Jesus give us a sign, meaning I do something really cool with the stars in the sky. You know what we read in the Old Testament? Make the sun stop. Do something really sweet looking. It's not that he couldn't do it, but what's the point? It doesn't really have a point because Jesus was all about compassion. It doesn't matter. He'll get to that one day when he comes again and he'll recreate everything. Then you can see it. <laughs> but what is he most concerned about? Jesus is all about his compassion for people who are hurting, isn't he? And that should be our attitude as well, even though I can't raise people from the dead or I can't instantly heal somebody as much as I would like to. If you've been in ministry or if you've done hospital visits, if you've done all those things when people are hurting, when life gets really hard, when you know what you want to see happen, but you know you have no means in which to do that while you're sitting in a hospital watching someone die, knowing there's really no, you're at the end of yourself, and all you can do is just sit there and just be with. And the very thing that you want is to fix it. And you can't. But you can demonstrate your compassion by just being there, praying with, comforting. See, the gifts, whatever you've been given, 
has been meant to give away. It's not to call attention to yourself. Hey, look how good I am. Look how good a speaker I am, which I have to work on really hard. Well, look how good of this or that. It's not about me. It's not about what you can do. It's about what your gift is doing to someone else. It's meant to be given away. It's, you're the pipeline. You're not this cul-de-sac or this dead-end street of all the gifts that you have so everybody can look how, look how wonderful you are. It's meant to be given in a compassionate way to demonstrate God's mercy. You are not an apostle. I am not an apostle. There are no apostles today except for the false ones. We pray for healing, trust in God's providence when we, when we pray. And our message is that God's will will one day gather you up because that's all we have, the hope of eternal life in Christ. And there will one day be no more sickness, no more death, no more tears, and you will be healed from all of your infirmities, Matthew 8 says. The purpose of all this was to give these apostles not only the experience they needed because they were going to do this when Jesus left, but also, if you remember, there were thousands upon thousands of people coming to Jesus in one place. It makes it really hard to do something. It makes it really hard to disciple one another when you're sitting in front of 200 people like today or 2,000 people or 20,000 people. As much as that's exciting, wow, look at what's happening. God's doing, yeah, great, wonderful. So we filled the place up. Awesome. That's not the point. The point is you and I are to make disciples, and I can't do that like this. But I can have coffee with you. I can sit down with you. It is slow, it is tedious, and it takes a long time. Jesus, if you understand this, took three years, and he was with those guys just about all the time. And they still struggled, didn't they? They still doubted. We don't typically have that kind of time because of our lives. It's a different culture now. But the means in which we are the disciples is still the same. It's life on life. You don't do it alone. You demonstrate the compassion and the giftedness that he has given you. Here's the third one. Verse 8. You live dependently on him. You have to be dependent on who God is. Just like in Exodus, the connection of Israel being like Egypt, he says, travel light. They would have understood this. I am sending you out. So just like when they were in Egypt, because don't take anything, this is going to happen really quick. You guys are going to get and go. He tells them the very same thing here. Don't take, you're not taking money, you're not taking anything with you. It would be tempting, don't you think? If you had all that power just given to you to make a buck here, to be there. Just like what we see with false teachers or so-called apostles in our day. It's just another object lesson to trust who God is. To live dependently. The idea is, as long as Jesus is here, we're good. He's right here. I can see him. I can touch him. When Peter gets out of the boat, walks, hey, if it's you, call me out and I'm going to do this. As long as you're here, I feel good. But Jesus, no, he's not going to be here. They're not physically going to see him anymore. And this is one of those tests for them just like it is for you and for me. As long as Jesus is around, we're good. And they needed to learn the same lesson that apart from Jesus, they're still going to be okay to live dependently. 18 months from here, 
he's going to be crucified, resurrected, and back and ascended to heaven, roughly. He's physically not going to be here anymore. They need to understand this lesson. What is it that God teaches them? If you remember, there's Jesus' teaching, the sermon on if God clothes the lily of the field, he's going to clothe you. It's beautiful as the wildflowers, and you go up in the mountains, especially this time of year, it's just beautiful. It's covered with flowers, especially after rain like we had last night. If you look at that and God takes care of all of those things, aren't you more precious than those? It's a rhetorical question. See, it's one thing to hear someone teach that or preach that. It's quite another to live it out, isn't it? Because it's hard when you've lost that job. It's hard when you're paying, you know, it feels like 60 bucks a gallon for gas. <laughs> it feels. Five dollars is plenty, thank you very much. Or all the stress and strain that you and I are now feeling because of that. It's hard. But he's caring for you, clothing you, taking care of you. He feeds the birds, he'll feed you. He will provide for you, that's his promise, if you are in Christ. It doesn't apply to everybody, it is specific. It is only specific for those who are found in Jesus Christ. He is the Heavenly Father to you. That's the deal. And He treats you and acts like you like no other father you had, good, bad, or indifferent in this life. Whatever you've experienced, it is not that. It is grander than that. He will provide for you even when you wonder where He's at. Now listen, I've heard this before, but this is what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean you're supposed to take a vow of poverty, okay? (laughs) That's not what this is. This is just a lesson about being dependent on him. And this is how he carried it out. Don't lay up or pursue your earthly treasures to get your loves out of order, in other words. Paul says it probably best, I have learned to be content with little or a lot. I have to be honest because I struggle with that still. It's a hard lesson, but the lesson is that God will provide in Christ. He knows your needs. He knows what you need. In fact, if you go to Luke chapter 22, this is where Jesus says, as he's coming to the end, he says this is where he does the exact opposite. This time he says, no money, no belt. You're going with this grand gift in this, and if you show up with all this stuff and this money bag and two tunics, which basically, if you had two tunics, you were a wealthy guy. Don't take any of that. A staff, sandals, and, and just a pair of clothes. No change of underwear, nothing. <laughs> this is what you're doing. I will take care of you. But in Luke 22, he says, yeah, you're going to take some money this time. You're going to take your belt, a bag, and by the way, get a sword. We'll get to that later. The point is, the first time I'm sending you out with nothing so you lack nothing. And when they come back, did you lack anything? Like, well, no, we didn't lack a thing. We didn't take anything, never wanted for a thing. Isn't that amazing? Live dependently. Here's the follow-up to that, the next one, contentment. These 12 men demonstrated their contentment in who and what God was. See, people who can't do miracles, but they tell you they can, these are the people in our day that get filthy rich and fly jets around because of the pressure they put or the pretend healers. 
Why is that? Because when you're sick, especially if you have a son or daughter who's sick, you are desperate, are you not? That was my experience. And you see that little gift that you were given, and once again, you get to the end of yourself, and you're listening to the doctors, and you're trying to put all the pieces together, and you have another appointment, and more medication, or this, that, and the other thing, and, and you just, you just want to fix them. <laughs> you just want them to be okay. And these people play on those emotions under the illusion that somehow you can buy healing. Hey, sow your seed into this ministry and God's going to bless you and blah, blah, blah. Send your money in and you'll get healthy. Send your money in and you'll get rich. All liars all come from the father of lies who prostituted themselves in the name of Jesus Christ. These men, these 12, could actually do what they proclaimed they could do. And when they arrived, people began to see, and everybody wants to be a host. So what does he say? You're going to stay with one person. What did the false teachers do? They would go from house to house to house. Once they consumed all these resources, okay, you're done. Can't help me anymore. They'll go to the next one, and then the next one. And so on. And Jesus says, nope, you're not doing that. You go into one place that will receive you. You're going to stay there until you leave. You're not going to be bought. You're not going to be manipulated and pressured into you, you know, gaining money and all these things with the gifts that you can do now. You're not going to take gold from people. No silver, not even copper. You're not going to do any of that. Even if they offer it to you, you're not taking any of it which I believe maybe Judas had a hard time with. The idea is never put a price on your ministry, your giftedness, or what you're doing. You accept whatever the Lord provides. And honestly, the beautiful thing about where you and I still live, you have lots of options, don't you? You're not pigeonholed into a particular, oh, oh you're this, then you're going to do this, and this is all you can do. You're stuck here. and no, You can go back to school if you want, even if you're older. You can go do and pursue another career after you've retired from the first one, maybe. There's all these options still here. It's a beautiful thing. But the Lord provides. Don't sell yourself to the highest bidder. Be content. Here's the next one. Discernment. It's a basic skill, if you will, to exercise discernment. Verse 11 any place that doesn't receive you or listen to you, you go out from there. Shake the dust off your feet. Go back to verses 1 through 6. You've got to remember this is why Jesus went back to Nazareth. You're going to be rejected with the message of the gospel. It's not popular. It is certainly not popular. It's a fair assumption that you will be rejected in the gospel conversation you're going to have. Message is too hard. Scripture says the gospel is a stumbling block. Now, you don't need to put anything else in the way. It is more than enough to irritate people who don't want to repent. <laughs> we don't need to add to it with any other stuff. It is a high and holy calling. And they were sent out to a religious society and people who have spent their whole lives doing the right things thinking they were the right people of God because they did all the hoops and they jumped through all the stuff. They dotted all the I's, crossed all the T's, and we are God's people. And Jesus is saying, no, you're not. 
You're not chosen because you do all the right things. And so it's a hard sell to recognize that, that you are a sinner deserving of hell because you've been told your whole life you just do this, this, and this, and you're good. In fact, if you remember when Jesus tried to preach his first time in Nazareth, what did they try to do? They surrounded him, tried to push him to the highest part of the cliff and chuck him off. They rejected him in his hometown once again. So he says, shake the dust off the soles of your feet. This is a a testimony. That's a Jewish tradition, by the way. It's just expression that when you would travel out 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 of the, you'd cross the boundary, so... You know, this is Israel, and I take a step up. Now I'm in Gentile country, and I got to go do business, or I got to travel, or I got to go do something, visit family, whatever. When I walk in, I stop right at the border. I take my tunic off. I'm shaking. I'm shaking. I can't bring, I don't want to bring any of this sinful Gentile attitude or anything like that off and bring it back into Israel. Does that make sense? That's the idea. You shake it all off because you've been kicking up Gentile dirt. You shook it out of your hair, your robe, your socks, your sandals, all of those things. You didn't want to bring it back into the land of Israel. You're going to the lost sheep of Israel, is what Jesus is saying. You're not going to the Gentiles right now. And when they reject you, it is like they are. And you shake it off. You're going to call judgment on them because they're going to reject you. You're going to be rejected. When you go to Matthew 10, again, the parallel passage, it's much more um, descriptive, if you will. In whatever city or village you enter and inquire who is worthy in it, stay at that house until you leave the city. And if you don't, you shake it off. You leave. Go to a worthy place, in other words, not an unworthy one. Verse 15 of that same chapter, Jesus says this, It'll be more tolerable in the land for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city that you're... Can you imagine that? Do you understand what he's saying? you understand Abraham's plea with God? God, if there's 50, and he wheels it all down to 10. Basically, I'm thinking in his mind, okay, how many... There's, there's Lot, his wife, his kids. Okay, I don't know if they're married yet or not. <laughs> okay, 10. If I find 10 righteous people, will you save this city? He says, yeah, for 10. Goes back to his compassion. But it'll be more tolerant in judgment day for the people of Sodom and Gomorrah because they didn't hear the gospel. They didn't hear it. You've heard it. There is nothing else you can go, no place you can go when you hear the God. There's nothing else coming. This is it. There's no other salvation. There's no anything left for you when you hear the gospel. It'll be more Tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah. Man. The miracles have been done in Capernaum, Jesus said, in Chorazam, Bethsaida, that had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah. If you would have seen those things, if Sodom and Gomorrah would have seen the very thing that I've been doing, that these men are doing, they would have repented. It's a judgment again against them. If you've ever had a gospel conversation, one of the most, it's like the, every non-Christian's life verse is Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. But only the first part. <laughs> what does that say? Don't judge so you don't 
so you aren't judged. I'm paraphrasing, right? I could do it in King James because that's how I learned it. <laughs> but, that's, but they stop. They don't, they don't finish it. That's the point here. You have to explain the gospel. You're under judgment. You shake it all off. You understand and understand this discernment that, that if this is what's happening, you don't try to chase people down. If, if Jesus never chased anybody. Here's the gospel. Here's what you have to do to receive it. Here's the love I'm offering you. You receive it or you don't. By what standard to measure, it will be measured to you. You don't judge from a sinful posture, in other words. And he's talking to the Jews. It applies to us today. You can't sit in judgment of others when, and give some kind of defined judgment or authority when that little speck is bothering your own eye and you can't seem to get it out. Don't worry about the log. The irony is, he says, take the speck out of what? Yours. And then do what? It's not that you don't address the log that's in your neighbor's eye. You do. But there's a step before that. That's make sure you're right with God, that you're clean, that you're conscious, that you have short accounts, that, you, that, that it's gone. Then you can see rightly is the point. And you discern that. He even goes on, Jesus, in his description of this, is that, don't give this stuff to wild dogs because they're going to turn and tear you apart. He says the same thing about pigs. Do you think pigs will appreciate a pearl? Nope. That's his point. Jews didn't raise the pigs, but they certainly would have got their attention after he said something like that. They will rip you to shreds. Once they know you're trying to feed them or give them something or be nice, I mean, the pigs, they will, if they, and they don't get what they want, they will just turn on you and come after you. They represent those who are perverse in our culture today, the ungodly today, those who reject the truth, the message of the gospel. So you have to be discerning. Here's the next one being obedient. Back to Mark chapter 6. They obeyed the command that God's or Jesus said to go and do this. Verses 12 and 13. They went out to preach that men should repent. Matthew 2 are oppressed. They had and came from no authority from the religious establishment. They had no connection, no training in the, the right ways that people think about that. They struggled with their own doubts just like you and I do. They're misunderstood. There's frustration that happens. But they didn't trust in themselves and their own ability and their own giftedness. They just did what they were commanded to do. And the results weren't up to them. What's interesting to me is if you go to, again, Matthew chapter 10, it's the same story. And Jesus says this to them that you don't get in Mark. He says, I'm sending you out as sheep amongst the wolves, now, they would have understood that. <laughs> what? I've seen that carcass that that wolf is, you know, up on the field there, uh, or the bear, or whatever. I've seen what happens. And you're, we're going to go do that? What did they do? They were obedient. 
Beware of men, they will hand you over to the courts, they will scourge you in their synagogues. You'll even be brought before the governors of king and kings for my sake as a testimony to them to the Gentiles. But when they do and hand you over, don't worry, again, this provision, don't worry about what you're going to say or do or think. I will be with you. I will give you that hour what you're going to say. What are the wolves saying today in our culture? They are howling loud, don't you think? For Jesus, it was crucify, crucify. When Paul, if you read the book of Acts, and I encourage you to continue to do that because you see this section lived out through that whole letter that Luke writes of the early church. Paul goes in, says, hey, you know what? You don't have to, there's really nothing to this tiki god stuff and all these silversmiths and that kind of thing. And and Artemis, it's a false god. So there's no need for that. But let me tell you about the one true God. Well, the whole Ido Guild and the Silversmith Guild and everybody else that was making those things got in a tizzy because it just trashed their economy. <laughs> they're losing their jobs because this guy's saying that's not false. I mean, that's just false. There's no, they're just, look at, I mean, you can go in and watch them make it and that's a God? Seriously? I don't think so. But let me tell you about the true God and let me show you his power through me by healing and all these things that he was doing. And what do they do? They're screaming, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And this mob shows up. Not thinking, all they're doing is yelling and screaming because they're losing something. You hear it today, do something, do something. In essence, just do what I tell you as far as our government goes. Sit down, be quiet, just do what we say. If you don't like that, then it's hate speech. What are the wolves saying? Love accepts everything. That's what love does. No, actually, love speaks the truth and calls you to repent. That's what it does. True love, the love in Christ. What are the wolves saying? Breaking down any distinctions between male and female. One of my favorites that I read this past week about truth. It was very... I guess, eye-opening to me. Truth is condescending and rude. And you fill in the blank phobic that you'll be called. Because you will be called something. A phobic. Okay, yep. I will. Have been. It's okay. Because that's all they have. So deep is the rebellion, Romans chapter 1. So deep is what Paul goes through because of what's out there, what you're going to face, but they still went. They were still obedient through it all. At some point, this short-term mission trip that they're about to go on is going to turn into a lifelong process. And their obedience to me is so remarkable, knowing what Jesus said that's going to happen to them, and yet they still went. It's amazing to me the, the fortitude and the desire for, for someone to, I want to be a part of that. I want to see God move in my life. I don't care what the sacrifice is. I don't care what's going to happen. But I want to see him move for however long. For Stephen, it was one message. (laughs) And they hauled him out and stoned him. James, the same. Some of the apostles, they're thinking, hey, we're with Jesus. We're we're, we're just going to do this and do it until a ripe old age. There was only one disciple that made it, and that was John. Tradition says they were all martyred. Part of God's plan. 
Yet they went out, they obeyed, they preached, and they preached repentance. They preached the kingdom of God. It's a confrontive message. It is not a popular message, but it is a bold message. And it is a message that you and I need to wrestle with and hang on to, to be a part of something greater than ourselves, To stand together in unity as a church in this moment, in this time, in this community. To let our light shine, to be salt and light. To be disciple makers. But as soon as you preach repentance, it's confrontative. It cuts very quickly. But they just did what the Lord told them to do. Just go preach salvation. The cross and Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Demonstrate the compassion that Jesus did in His own ministry. Call sinners to repent. Love them. Love your enemy. Pray for them that persecute you. Nothing more, nothing less. That's what they did. Here's the last one. How are we doing? Oh, not bad. <laughs> They're accountable. Anybody in the service of the Lord and you as a Christian understand that there's a report to be given with your life. Mark chapter 6, if you go to, I think it's verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told all that they had done and taught. They were so fired up about what happened. Whether they came back a week, a month later, I don't know. But they gave a report. They preached and they demonstrated the power of God in their life. They're apostles now. They passed the test. They are now the instructors that are going to instruct the rest of the church throughout all history. And they came back two by two. They were scattered all over the place, so the countryside. Hebrews chapter 13 says this, We are those, uh, uh, the elders of the church, who have given an account. Paul said in Corinthians 4 um, the same thing, this idea that you will give an account of this opportunity that you have in the gospel. Back with their stories of being accepted and new converts. That once you get to the book of Acts, those places would have had this, this little huddle of people trying to figure this out because they didn't have the word of God written to them yet. The letters and all the, the ideas of what's going on in Jerusalem and all through the countryside hasn't happened yet. But they came back. They were accountable to each other. No one wants to come back and be that guy, right? <laughs> the one that buried the talent. Here it is. No one, no one wants to do that. The whole idea is that God will use you, whatever you have to offer. You just offer it and let Him deal with what the results are. You are just faithful in the obedience because you're going to be accountable to Him. But they were accountable to each other to encourage one another to know that, okay, you're doing the same thing, I'm doing the same thing, you're doing the same thing, we're all doing the same thing. We got it. Go and make disciples. We have a team of people now. We have 12. That's going to turn in not too long from now to 70 and so on and so forth to the point that you and I are here today because of this message. Someone shared it with you. 
They came back, by the way, to the story that John the Baptist had become beheaded and lost his life in the account, in the kingdom process. And Jesus says, we need to get away again. These principles that you and I apply, that still apply to us today, it's not without taking time to rest. God is a gracious and good God, and so He's not this taskmaster like all the other leaders they would have known in their day. As much as I want to try, you just, you, eventually I'll just hit a wall, and my wife will remind me, so what's your day off again? <laughs> but rest is a good thing. The season of life you find yourself in through this whole process of disciple making. Again, whether you have little kids at home and and all you're thinking is, when do they ever get out of diapers? I feel like I'm changing diapers the whole time. (laughs) It never ends. Guess what? It does end. And then when the grandkids come, you're like, man, you start thinking about how fun that was. (laughs) Because you're not in it every day. But whatever season of life you find yourself in, that's what you offer. Maybe you used to do these things in, in other ministry or because you love to teach or that kind of thing, but like me, you're getting a little grayer and older and that kind of stuff. That was my dad. My dad demonstrated this to us as kids. The, the very first one today, you don't do it alone. So when he had a, he was an elder, so I grew up an elder's kid. So, hey, I got to go calling and I need you to come. And I'm like, what? I don't know what to do, what to say. You don't say anything. He had this film strip series thing that he taught people. Jewel Miller, I think it was. Five weeks. Genesis to Revelation in five weeks. It's a super cool discipleship kind of thing, just to give you this big 30,000 foot view. All my job was to do was wait for the beep. Turn the knob. Next picture. <laughs> Set up the screen, whatever, do all that. But he took me with him. All, all of this. Because that's where he was at. Listen, kind of drifting at this point, but if you still have kids at home, if you're a dad, they better see you praying. I know you're supposed to do it in your closet, but they better see you opening and cracking open your Bible, sitting down and studying, because if all this is, this is all they see, they're not going to get it. That's not how you disciple your children. You have to do it with them. You have to do ministry with them, even when they're small. Opening door, I mean, something that they can do so they don't get frustrated, but By the time they're in high school, junior high, they are big enough, smart enough, and capable enough to minister. And there should be this expectation in your own life as a dad, as a mom, that where are you serving? What are you doing? How are you living this out? Because they're capable. They understand. And they can. And they want to. But coming from you, it means a lot more. No matter where you are in the season of life you find yourself, everybody needs to rest. My dad's 90. He doesn't hang out with the high school kids anymore and do all those crazy things he used to do when I was five, six, and seven with my older brothers and sisters, right? Can't do it anymore. (laughs) But he does what he can at 90. Sometimes it's just showing up at a worship service to encourage, to pray with. You don't hear about it, I don't imagine much, when you get to be of that vintage. (laughs) But they pray more now than they ever have, I think, because that's what they can do. 
the season of life that they are in. It's a cool thing for me to see. It's an awesome thing for us to see it together. To know what each of us are doing in the process wherever you find yourself. To live these principles out. Knowing that God is going to use us and grow us and shape us because each one of us are wrestling with us. How do we do this? The things we say. How do I have a gospel conversation? Go back and what was the gospel? What am I supposed to say? What, what is that? To know that. To actually share that. Because this is the ministerial process. This is how we grow the kingdom. You want to grow this church? This is how it happens. We make disciples. We engage people. You invite somebody. When you bring someone in, guess what? They're your responsibility. <laughs> you, this isn't a drop, tuck, and roll kind of adventure. You know, I'll do the best I can Sunday morning or whatever and meet with them, but they're yours. A family member, a neighbor, you bring them with you. You find a small group. You serve with them and get them connected with other people because they may not want to be in your small group. <laughs> you help them grow and mature. We'll come alongside you. The, Pam, the children's ministry student, I would say this, they understand this too. They're not the disciples. They'll come alongside you as a parent. They will you know, shore it up, strengthen it. They will do all those things. But you're the parent. They are your responsibility to disciple, not theirs. The more we understand and understand that everybody has a peace in this, that we're accountable, that we're obedient, that we use the discernment, that we're living dependently on what God is bringing and doing, all of these things, that we are compassionate to one another, that you just don't go do this on your own. I should probably call somebody. Maybe they'll go with me. Take somebody with you. Proclaim the gospel because you're called to it. How will you turn the world upside down? How will we, as a church here in this place, in this time, turn it upside down for Jesus Christ? How will we multiply the kingdom? How will we do that where we live, work, and play today in a culture for you and I as Christian people in this life? Jesus, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the kingdom strategy that you've given that there is no need for us to think about it or make something up that you have already declared what you would have us to do to live out. So Father, our methods are different in a different culture and the things that we have to deal with are different than when the apostles went out that first day. But God, I pray that the heart of it all, that the idea of making disciples never changes. That you give us a heart for the lost to be bold, to have gospel conversations, to be salt and light that you have called us to be. And whether the darkness in this world and the people here that we come in kind of, whether they receive it or not, whether we're salty enough or not, that you would transform their heart, that you would bring the people here so we can be the church you desire us to be. And once they're here, to disciple, to grow, to mature in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, the grace that you've given us. So then they too are prepared to go and make disciples, to multiply the kingdom where they live, where we can play, baptizing the nations. Jesus, we have a lot of work to do. Through it all, help us to rest in it. 
and what you're doing. To not think that it's all on us as individuals or collectively as a church. That we just need to be faithful in these principles to live out and watch the work that you're going to do in us and through us in our or my feeble attempts. Father, thank you that when we are weak, you show up. God, I pray that you show up in a mighty way here in this place. In Jesus' name, amen.